0: Was well, has anyone ever asked you or said to you, you have no idea what you're doing? That's usually a bad sign if somebody says that right off the bat. And, and you should probably stop and make sure that you are not making a colossal error. Maybe you want to ask yourself, is that true? Do I really have no idea what I'm doing? Sometimes we've got to be honest with ourselves, and the answer might be yes. I know people have said that to me, and you're like, you're right. I have no idea what I'm doing. There's a famous quote in an older movie where consultants take over a company and they interview the employees about what their jobs entail, and one employee can't seem to come up with anything significant about what he does. And frustrated, the consultant asks him, what is it that you say you do here? What do you do? What are you supposed to be doing? And what about the church? What is it that we say we're doing here? What are we supposed to be doing? And the question, of course, ties directly into who we are. Who is our, what is our identity? Many churches have lost their way, and they've wandered into dangerous territory. And we see this in the megachurch, attractional nonsense that goes on constantly. But we also see it in the satanic side, where some church pastors preach false gospels and heresy. The most frustrating thing is that we've been given our mission We've been given our mission clearly in the Word of God, what we're supposed to be focusing on. And as the Apostle Paul begins to wrap up his letter, he wants to give them a little reminder of what it is they should be doing. And as a church, it's vital that they and us, Highlands, know for certain what we are supposed to be doing and Paul's going to give us three key points today from our passage that I hope and pray will crystallize what the church is supposed to be doing. So if you're not there already, make your way over to Romans 15. We are almost there, people. In my Bible, in this sermon, I'm going I'm to turn a page, and the end is in sight. There it is. And from there, on March 10th, Lord willing, we will start our series in Genesis and so a big transition there to wrap our heads around Genesis. Last week in Romans, we looked at verses 8 through 13 and the truthfulness of God that should bring us hope. We saw God's fruitfulness confirmed in how the Messiah did come through Israel and how that Messiah was not just for Israel, it was for the whole world. We saw his truthfulness confirmed in the fruits of the Spirit, how they grow and increase on those of us who follow Jesus through obedience the God of hope. This week, we look at Paul writing some summary instructions to the church, and let's look at just the first verse. So Romans 15, in verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Paul starts off on a very complimentary note. Remember, Paul has never been to the church at Rome. But he's heard about them and what he hears, he is confident, he is convinced, he is satisfied that they're full of goodness, filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another. I want us to look at each one of those three things that he mentions there very briefly. First, full of goodness. It doesn't mean that they're good people because earlier in the letter, way back in chapter three, we learned very clearly that there is no one who is good. We are all sinners, we are all separated from God under the wrath of God and there's nothing we can do about it. Welcome to Highlands Bible Church. I'm sorry to give you that bad news. Let's look at Romans chapter 3 where he says that point blank. So we're not confused. In Romans 3 starting in verse 10, as it is written, no one is righteous. He's quoting Psalm 14. No not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, full of goodness cannot mean they are good enough to earn their salvation. Paul's already made that much clear. But it does mean that they are good to each other. They're full of goodness in order, in other words, the, the, the goodness that they've received from God, vertically, they spread out horizontally to each other. They are good to each other. Second, he says they're filled with all knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of everything he's been writing about. See chapters 1 through 14. But also knowledge in particular, of course, of the gospel. And maybe specifically knowledge of sin, which makes us realize that we need the gospel. Earlier, also in chapter 3, in Romans 3.20, he talks about the difference between law and gospel as it relates to salvation. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes, watch this, knowledge of sin. And so the knowledge that Paul is talking about is the, the, the awareness that they need a Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. Third, he says that they're able to instruct one another. The word translated instruct here is the Greek word nutheteo. It has a sharper meaning particularly related to just instructing one another. It's not like we're sitting in a class and we're learning things. It has a much sharper meaning. One lexicon says that nuthateo is to offer counsel and instruction for avoidance or cessation of inappropriate conduct. So in other words, when you nuthateo someone, you are talking to them about their sin. You are confronting them. You are trying to correct them. And so if we tie all these things together, the church is full of goodness to each other. No one, of course, is good enough to earn salvation on their own apart from faith in Christ. They are full of knowledge, the knowledge of the awareness of sin, the knowledge of the Savior. His name is Jesus. And they're able to correct one another. They're able to get each, other's, get each other back on track. And all that is part of truly caring for one another. Correcting each other is part of the goodness that they're filled with. Knowing how to correct one another is actually good for the church. It's good for the purity of the church. And so, I'll say it this way for the first point. The church knows that it's good to care for one another. The church knows, or should know, that it's good to care for one another. And what does that look like in the church? I'll give us two diametrically opposed pairs for application here. First, caring is not merely feeling, but feeling in Action. Caring's not merely feeling, but feeling in action. I always cringe when I hear this in a pastoral counseling situation, or just maybe somebody says it. Well, they always know how I feel about them. They always know how I really actually do care for them. How how might they know that? Unless you're showing them that. Unless you're actually letting those feelings spill out in action. And that's again, it's not merely a feeling. It has to be acted out in ways that people can see it. I had Alyssa and Doreen from my brother's, brother's place on the podcast this week, and we talked about biblically caring for others. We mentioned the verse in First John, but if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, in other words, doesn't want to do anything, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That song we just sung about, uh, named "Speak, O Lord," we we sang that very verse. Let us love in deed and in truth. How will anyone ever know that I actually care about them if I don't actually do anything to show them that I care about them? Meeting practical needs showing brotherly affection, taking time out to connect with them, offering to connect with them, talk about them with grace and encouragement, point them to Christ. And so first, caring is not merely a feeling, but it's rather feeling and action. But second, caring is not enabling sin, but rather confronting and correcting, correcting rather, in love. God's word calls us to nutheteo one another. We have to confront and seek to correct when we see sin and not just look the other way. Paul uses nutheteo in Colossians 1.28. He says, him we proclaim, warning, that's the word he translates there as, as nutheteo, everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might prevent everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal of correcting someone. Their maturity, their growth in Christ. Elsewhere in Colossians 3, he uses it again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, there's our word, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See him even connecting there the songs that we sing. And we're very particular about the songs that we sing here intentionally. Why? Because it all works together. We speak the truth. Sometimes we have to use firm words to speak the truth. But we do that because caring is not enabling sin. But we confront and we correct in love. Ask yourself, am I enabling patterns of sin in my brothers and sisters here at church because I'm just not saying anything? Because I just don't want to speak up. We're called right here in this passage to instruct, to warn, to admonish one another. And we all need it. Ask yourselves how we are caring for each other. How do I show that I truly care for my brothers and sisters here in the church? Do they know that I care for them? Am I showing brotherly affection? Do I love my brothers and sisters, as John told us, indeed and in truth? All of this, Paul, stitches together in just the first verse here. The church knows that it's good to care for one another, and caring is not a mere feeling, but feeling and action. And caring is not enabling sin, but we're, we're to correct each other in love. Look at how Paul, uh, with the next truth, he lays down for the church in this passage. Look at verse 15 of Romans 15. He says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my works for God. If you had sensed a but coming from that first verse, here it is. He says, I myself am satisfied about you. You guys are doing great. You're full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge. You're able to correct each other. But on some things, I've had to use some firm words. I've had to to say things sharply to remind you. what sorts of things? Well, again, see chapters 1 through 14. Primarily, he's talking about the context of this letter. These are the things that I've had to say to you. Some may balk at Paul's authority to do this. I mean, who is he to speak that way to us? He hasn't even been in here. He doesn't even know this church. And he's writing these letters to us and correcting us. And so Paul responds to that objection and tells them, listen, listen, I've been given grace by God to be a minister of Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of God for their salvation. He says that right in verse 15. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. This is a little bit of apostolic badge flashing here. He's like, no, I, I can do this. And remember, God told me to do this. God's the one who commissioned me to do this, right? And, and of course, this church in Rome being mostly made up of Gentiles. <clears throat> After Paul's conversion, God spoke directly this mission to him through Ananias in Acts chapter 9. For he is my chosen, speaking of Paul, he is my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. It's part of Paul's mission is to do this. Paul's saying, okay, if you're balking at why I'm saying this to you, it's my job, and I got my job from God, so take it up with him. That's what he's saying. Paul is not boasting in himself, and he goes on to say that. Look at verse 17. He says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And so Paul isn't boasting in himself, in his own authority. He's boasting in Christ Jesus. He says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God through Christ Jesus. I don't even dare, he says. I don't even venture to think or speak of anything but what Christ has done in me by saving the Gentiles. How is this verified that it's not God or it's rather God and not him. It's verified the usual way, signs and wonders. Miracles were always a confirmation of the apostolic message. We saw Jesus, of course, performing many miracles, signs and wonders, and he did that to verify who he was. And he gave that power to the apostles, the capital A. Apo- I don't know how to make an A. The capital A apostles, right? The ones who are directly sent by Jesus. We saw them, but people like Paul, working Miracles. Why? To verify their message. And Paul says, look at all the signs and wonders that I've done. That's verifying that I'm I'm sent by God himself. We don't see signs and miracles as the standard anymore. Why? Because there's no more apostles running around today. There are little a apostles like us. We're all little a apostles because we're sent into the world to proclaim the good news. But we have the apostolic word right here. And so those signs and wonders are confirmed in here. Paul in verse 19 then says something odd. He says, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, I've filled the ministry of the gospel or fulfilled the ministry of the, of the gospel of Christ. This is odd for two reasons. First, we have no mention of all, uh, at all of Paul visiting Illyricum in the New Testament. Maybe he thought he did, but he didn't. Maybe he did and didn't write it down. We're not sure. So what does he mean? It seems to be somewhat metaphorical, meaning something like from one end of the region to another, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. You know what we need to help us understand this? A map. A map would be so awesome to help us understand that. And so uh, full disclosure, I ripped this off from another pastor on the Google. I didn't make this myself. Although that would be pretty sweet if I did. I mean, look at that, that arrow right there. So Illyricum is all the way up top. And Jerusalem is down the bottom. And so you get the idea that it's kind of this sweeping scope. Paul may be using this as a metaphor to say, from one end of the region to the other, I preach the gospel. Even if he didn't go to Illyricum, maybe passing through, other people did for him. In other words, I covered the territory that God wanted me to cover. I did it. Everybody within that region has access to the gospel. We planted churches all throughout that. So that, that's probably what Paul means metaphorically when he's saying, I've preached it. It's like for us. Hopefully, we'll proclaim the gospel from one end of Sussex County to the next. And that map's caption, of course, leads us to the second odd thing about Paul's account. He says, no place left. And you look at that at face value, literal. I know some of you are extremely literal, right? Does that mean there's no place left? Does that mean he talked to every single person in that whole region? Does that mean that every single person dropped to their knees and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? No, it doesn't mean that. It means I fulfilled the mission that Christ gave me to proclaim the gospel in that region. It means I did what God, it means I did what God told me to do. And who empowers that? Verse 19, he tells us again, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit It isn't Paul who has done this. He says that it's Jesus Christ. That's who he's boasting about. And he boasts only about what God has done through him. And he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. So here's our second point. The second thing the church should know. The church knows that Christ alone transforms lives. It's Christ alone. It's not the Apostle Paul. We have to know that it's Christ alone that transforms lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. So then our boasting cannot be in ourselves or in Highlands Bible Church. Our boasting must be in Jesus Christ. And look at this this bonus lesson we have here in this little section. This is a huge Trinitarian passage because we understand we see God the Father mentioned. We see God the Son mentioned. Then we see God the Spirit mentioned. You'll not find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you will find Trinity all over the Bible. Each, each God, or each, well, I just drifted into modalism there. I repent before the elders come up and take me away. It's not each God. The Godhead, Lenny was about ready to get up just now. One God in three persons. Each person of the Godhead has their own job, so to speak. And the Holy Spirit especially, you've seen the way that 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 responsibility, so to speak, has changed over time. Soon we're going to be in Genesis and we're going to see the Holy Spirit was there hovering over the waters as God created the world. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus Christ to do the mission that he came to do. The Holy Spirit then resides in us. Why? Because Christ did the mission. He was resurrected. Now he's ascended. Now we have the Holy Spirit empowering us to do. But he couldn't do that until after Jesus did the work. It's planned by the Father, it's executed by the Son, and it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you think there's a temptation for Paul to be able to boast in his own efforts? I mean, think about that. At that time, I mean, travel was terrible. There's passages in 1 Corinthians, right, where he tells about all his travel. I was adrift in the sea for two days. I was beaten with rods. I have all this other stuff that was going on. I was whipped. But he still did it there's a temptation for him to boast for sure in that. Could you imagine being the Apostle Paul, transformed from a Pharisee, now preaching the very God or the very savior, right, that you once said was not a savior, watching people like himself being transformed right before your very eyes, planning churches, moving on to the next town, doing it again, doing it again, doing it again. Do you think there was a temptation for him to boast in himself? Absolutely there was. But he says, I refuse. I will boast in Christ and church. We have to keep that in mind. We are on the cusp of some very big things here. I truly believe that in the next few years, we will see a whole new campus. Call that a prophecy if you want to. With lots of new ministries and significant growth, Where right here. I could be wrong. But I think the Lord's lining it up for us. And look back at what God has done over the last seven years. I think this Easter, we're going to be eight. Sounds right. My goodness. What has God done? Church planning is a lot like a roller coaster, right? We can take no credit, right? Sometimes Pastor Ryan and I get together, and we talk about how this happened. And we're like, hmm. We just, it's like a roller coaster. You get in, they pull that little bar in front of you, right? And you hope your thing. I always check it like 15 times to make sure it's good and that's it. You just go. God takes his church where he wants his church. What do we do? We need to be faithful, and we need to remember it's not us. It is God working through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are ministers of the gospel of God. Church, we know that Christ alone changes lives, but we also know that the only way that he does that is through the Spirit's work through the gospel. We have to carry the message that we are entrusted with. That's our job. Sometimes there's a temptation to make it a little bit more exciting than it is or attractional or seeker or whatever. It's, we just have to be responsible with the message that God has given us from one end of Sussex County to the other where God has placed us. We have to proclaim Christ, not ourselves. We have to point people to Christ as the one who alone transforms lives. And that is the transforming power of the gospel. Think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord. Watch this, who is the Spirit? The Spirit transforms us from one degree of glory to the next through the gospel. Christ transforms lives here at Highlands. And how does he do that? With our crazy light show, of course. With our giant video wall. Oh, where's our giant video wall? It went away. No, through the preaching of God's word. Through the ministry of God's word. The sword of the Spirit. One of my favorite things to do, and we have some today, is new member interviews. When they get to the final step, and they they come to the elders, and we talk about the gospel, and maybe we hear their testimony, and my favorite testimony in the world is this. I thought I was a Christian. I came to Highlands. I heard the Bible preached like I've never heard it preached before. Not by me, right? Not in that sense. I'm not, not saying that. The Holy Spirit working through the Word, and God saved me. It's the most boring testimony in the entire world. And I love it. I absolutely love it. I love hearing that. And that happens all the time here because God works through his word. We went through Acts on Wednesday mornings and now we're in first Samuel. We're going through Acts on Wednesday nights. And sometimes I think the guys get a little bored because it's the same thing. City after city after city. Paul goes in, preaches the gospel. People get saved. Church is built. Move on. What does he do there? Well, okay, let's preach the gospel. People get saved. A church is built, and he moves on. It's like, I feel bad for the guy sometimes. It's like, well, how did this happen this week? Uh, well, he preached the gospel, and people got saved, and a church was built, and then he moved on, right? That's how it works. That's our job. The church knows that Christ alone transforms hearts. In church, Join me in praying that from one end of the county to the other, we will fulfill like Paul. We will do our diligence. We will be faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're to proclaim it. And there's only one mission and vision that we're supposed to have as the church. Look at verse 19. By word and by deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way through Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. I just turned the page. I can see it. It's the end. Paul wraps it up for us. And he says, thus or so, here's what I do. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where people have already done so, but in new places. Paul's like, I'm not going to places where other people have proclaimed Christ. I'm going to new places. And he quotes Isaiah 52, 15, which we read earlier where the prophet Isaiah is talking about the Messiah who will come, sacrifice himself for sin, and then his message, his gospel, will go out to all the earth and people will be saved. That which hasn't been told to them, they will see. And that which they've not heard, they will understand. So it will come for the first time and people will get it. Paul, again, taking a little apostolic liberties here in translating the Old Testament Hebrew to capture the main idea behind it. In other words, what they didn't understand, the gospel message, they now get it. They now understand. But we, therefore, we know then, poof, a light goes off in their head and they understand that they're sinners separated from a holy God. And we need a redeemer. We need a reconciled. We need a savior. And his name is Jesus. That message that was rejected and misunderstood will become accepted and understood. Paul says that it's his job to take this message to the places where they haven't heard of it yet. That's his gig. One commentator says, Paul is convinced that he has been called to a ministry of pioneer church planting. And that seems to be true. That seems to be the case. He's not going to build on someone else's foundation. He's going to lay it himself. And what is that foundation? He tells us elsewhere, but you're not going to be surprised to hear that it's the gospel. It's Jesus. That's the foundation. He is the one, along with the other apostles, who laid the foundation. We, as the church, are just building on that foundation. We're probably not going to go to a place necessarily, although there probably are some tribes and some other places where they haven't heard the gospel. But here in Sussex County, where we are, there's plenty of churches. There's a message that goes out every Sunday, hopefully, for most of them, even in its bare essence that we have a savior and his name is Jesus. And so we're to build on it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter three, where he says this especially and intentionally. 1 Corinthians chapter three in verse 10. He says, according to the grace God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He says, that's the foundation. He says, I laid it when I went to all those places. I planted the churches, and now those churches are growing, and they're building upon that foundation. That's the foundation. He comes out and says it. There is no other foundation. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if that's Paul's job, what's our job? Well, we already said it. We're to build on that foundation. The third thing we need to know is the church. The church knows that we build on the apostles' gospel foundation. We need to know that we build on the apostles' gospel foundation. Again, capital A. We're lowercase a. We still go. We still proclaim. Very important words. We build. We glorify God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. I also believe, again, that we're going to be physically building in the near future. But spiritually, we build on nothing other than the gospel, which is the foundation laid by people like the Apostle Paul. Church, Christ built his church. Christ built Highlands Bible Church. And the gates of hell, he says, will not stand against it. The church will continue. We need to be faithful to the original message that was transferred to the apostles and then given to the world. We stand on their shoulders. As a non-denominational church, sometimes we could lose some of this history, but we have to remember, we aren't or shouldn't be doing anything new here. We're just continuing to build on what has already been laid down. Ironically, today, we aren't supposed to be transforming our sanctuary into a football field. And giving away hot dogs at 9.30 a.m., which hot dogs are kind of gross to begin with, but hot dogs are definitely gross at 9.30 a.m. I'm not supposed to be trying to punt the Word of God through uprights or anything weird like that that we might see. We're not supposed to be preaching on Super Bowl commercials, which if you think I'm kidding, I'm not. We're supposed to be preaching this. That's what we're supposed to be preaching. I tried to get Melanie to impersonate Taylor Swift, and she said no. <laughs> if that ever happens, boy, oh boy. You better, you better get me off this stage very, very quickly. Because I have lost my marbles. Because we are not to be doing that stuff. We are to be proclaiming what the apostles laid down. We are to be continuing to build on the foundation which is none other than Jesus Christ. Our faith is historic. Our faith is apostolic. How do we get to know this foundation more? Well, first is obvious, and hopefully it's open in your laps right now, the Bible. These are the very apostolic writings in the New Testament that we have. These are Paul's journey that he's recorded for us, that we read and we understand, and it's soaked in doctrine. There's apostolic writings here, of course, along with the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. But second church, we we can't be afraid of the creeds and the catechisms and the confessions. We shouldn't be scared of those. We quote either the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed every month when we do communion. We need to read them. They're soaked in the foundation of the gospel. Historical theology, the church fathers, all of it. What does this mean for us It means that we're part of something much larger than just Highlands Bible Church. God's put that in each one of us, that, that kind of connection with him, that connection with his church. That's something that is bigger than all of us, and that's why we do it, because we're part of the community of Christ in the local church. There is no Christianity apart from the local church. It just doesn't work. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be connected to the local church. One of the most discouraging and fastest-growing segments of Christians, I'm using air quotes, are those who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I don't think you're a Christian if you don't go to church. I'm sorry. I, I really don't see that in the old. Now, there could be extenuating circumstances why you're not going to church. I don't mean that. It could be illness. There could be other things, whatever. But a Christian who just looks at the church and says, nah, I'm good. I don't need accountability, I don't need fellowship, I don't need community, I don't need any of that stuff, I've got me and YouTube, very dangerous. I've got me and my Bible, no, no, we're made to be part of what we've been given, we're made to be part of proclaiming the apostolic message and building on the foundation that they have laid, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about what the church should be doing, preaching God's word, Singing God's word, warning each other with God's word, living and rejoicing and applying God's word in the community of the local church. Paul says this very, very clearly, the foundation again he laid in Ephesians two, starting in verse 19. He says, this, so this or so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Watch this, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. You can't take the church out of the apostolic writings. It's in the very fiber of it. Paul says that's the point. We laid the foundation. The church is building on it. And as you build on it, you are then matured You then grow up together into Christ. And that ties back to the reality of caring for one another in the church. Why? So that we all grow into the holiness that we're called to through the Spirit of God. And where does that come from? Again, built where? On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The church knows that we build on the apostles' foundation. So where does that leave us Really simple, big idea for us this morning. The church knows what we are supposed to be doing. The church knows what we're supposed to be doing. It's given to us right here in the Word. And there are a lot of churches that have lost their way. I look at some of these things and all the things that go into the worship services, and I really do, and I'm, I restrain myself, but I want to say you have no idea what you're doing. You really don't. And it's not from me, it's from this. Is from what he calls us to. We have the instructions right here. You just aren't reading them. This is why Paul, as he starts to wrap up his letter to the church at Rome, he says, I'm reminding you. I'm bringing this as a summary. I'm reminding you. And he's also reminding us, Highlands. The church knows that it's good to care for one another, and that doesn't mean mere feelings, but feelings in action. It doesn't mean enabling sin, but having the courage to apply the Bible, to apply that foundation actually to someone's life so that we can grow. The church knows that we should never boast in ourselves. And again, Highlands Bible Church in what we have accomplished. It's really hard not to do that sometimes, I'll tell you, because God's been so good to us. And I see the pastors that are just like, how did you do this? I'm like, I didn't do this. But there's a little part of me, a little little, little part of me that wants to be like, yeah, well, sit down and I'll tell you all about it. That's sin. It's sin. God did this. And God will continue to do this. And we know that we're not supposed to be boasting anything else except Christ because it's Christ alone that transforms lives. And church, we need to know that we're not supposed to be reinventing the wheel here. We don't make this more attractional. This is as attractional as I get. Because I'm not the one attracting. It's the Holy Spirit that is the one doing the attracting through the word of God. We know exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Are we faithful in it? As we press on, church, we've got to know what we're supposed to be doing, and God himself has given us the mission. Let's go and let's do that clearly and boldly, church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the grace that you've given us in your word. We thank you for the realization of we have the words of the apostles here and pray that your spirit, Lord, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, would work through to open, would work through the Holy Spirit to, to open eyes, to convict, to encourage, to strengthen, to build. We do pray boldly, Lord, that you would build Highlands Bible Church. You have established up, established us and I pray that you would continue to. Lord, we seek your wisdom. We seek your favor and your opportunity to build physically, Lord. Pray that you will strengthen us, and pray that most of all, that you will keep our eyes fixed on exactly what we are supposed to be doing. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.